1: Six fifty-three. And go
0: for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You are listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: America's the greatest country in the world. One more hour flying by here. So I want to talk about the terrorist attack in uh, London, most recent one. Uh... So every time an attack like this would happen, let's go back a couple of years, I would get angry at, at, at society, right? I'd say, gosh, when will people wake up? And then there'd be another one. And I'd say, oh, surely people will wake up now. And then there'd be another one and say, okay, well, like this, this is it, right? People have to see what's in front of them now. I mean, how many of these attacks does there have to be? And then they'll say it's a lone wolf or it's a depressed person or an unemployed person. And they'll completely ignore all reality to try and dismiss it as no big deal. And then we have a coordinated attack, not a lone wolf, involving many different people at the same time, deliberate, running over people and then slitting their throats. They would have beheaded people if they had more time. And if their goal wasn't to kill as many people as possible screaming Allah and all the rest. And and I hear this, at a, I see this, at a, oh, okay, surely now the people of London and the world will wake up to this. No. Nope. So I had an epiphany the other day. I distinctly remember where I was when I had it. Where I was isn't important to the story. It's just that I was, it was, it was an epiphany. You know, when you have an epiphany, you tend to remember everything around it. So I've come to the conclusion that these attacks will have to be way worse before a majority of people wake up and start to care. I'm talking worse than 9-11. Worse than 9-11. So the reason I think we came together after 9-11 was because battle lines weren't yet drawn teams weren't yet decided um trenches weren't dug so when we were attacked everyone just did the right thing because no one had any other place to go right which is like oh let's all do the right thing but if there was a 9-11 today i think people would immediately go to their teams and and just yell at each other just like we do now. Right? Where you have people on the left who say, Oh, need more gun control or mental health, whatever. And then people on the right will be like Muslim terrorists, right? And but nothing will happen. Nothing will change. Nothing will be different because battle lines are now drawn. And we will not react. If there's another nine eleven, I don't think we will react the same way to this nine eleven as we did nine eleven two thousand one. Are you with me with what I'm saying here? And I, I thought of this because, again, every terrorist attack, you know, 10 people die, four people die, 20 people die, six people die. And there, there's way more terrorist attacks around the world from ISIS that than we know of. right? Like I mentioned the other day, in Egypt, 25 Christians killed, uh, 12 the other day in Iran. I mean, there's terrorist attacks all the time that we don't even know about. And it's just one after the next, after the next. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe when 50 people die, people will care. No, I don't, I don't even think then. What if there's a terrorist attack where a hundred people die? No, I don't think people will care then. What if there's a terrorist attack where 3,000 people die? Mm. Here's the the two things that I think would make a difference. First, if there's massive destruction, not just people, and this is really sad that I'm saying this. I'm not saying this is right or good, but I'm saying this, I think is right. It's accurate. That people care less about Seven humans being killed, than they would if the London Bridge was destroyed. Into the River Thames. Why? Because if the bridge was destroyed, that would impact more people's lives directly. That's how selfish I think we are. Is that seven human lives are taken, seven souls, and uh, we'll light some candles. But a couple days later, it's fine. But if the the bridge gets destroyed, well, now I can't get to work. So that's more of an outrage. It's more of a disruption. That's number one. The second thing I think of is if a celebrity gets killed. I think if a celebrity gets killed, then more people will care. Do you remember? Do you know any of the names who have the London terrorist attack most recent And but what if one of them was George Clooney? What if one of them was Madonna? Right. That's when I think people would would pay more attention sad but i think it's true now theresa may prime minister she said after the attack that there's there's a four-step program four things they're going to do in response to this first tougher sentences for terror offenses we don't have time to go into each of these i just want to go into the fourth one but tougher sentences less tolerance of extremism i love that Not zero tolerance, just less, just a little bit less. I mean, right now we have a ton of tolerance, but we're just gonna have a little bit less. Like a ton of tolerance as in one of the terrorists, you know this, we don't need to rehash all this, but one of the terrorists was in a video, like a documentary that played on the BBC about Islamic extremists in London. And there he is with the ISIS flag in a park. So so that's pretty tolerant, but we're just gonna have a little bit less, not zero tolerance, just a bit less. Uh, Number three, holding online giants accountable. Okay, so not getting to the root of it, just gonna go after Twitter. It's their fault, but this is the one I want to talk about. Number four, reinforce British values. We're going to reinforce British values. Hmm. Now I heard that and I thought, well, that's, that's good. That's good. But then I thought about who's saying it. It'd be good if Winston Churchill said it. It'd be good if Margaret Thatcher said it. Mayor of London. Hmm. Slater, how do you know? You know, how do you, how do you know what they're going to say? British values are that need to be reinforced. Well, I mean, listen, it's tough to define. If you had Barack Obama and Donald Trump each explain what American values are, I think, unfortunately, they'd have very different answers. So who's, who's defining this exactly? Now, listen, I don't know what they'll do moving forward, but, but I can tell you what they did immediately after the terrorist attack. This is the Scotland Yard assistant commissioner, so the police chief. In, she, he's saying, in an, and if there's another terrorist, she, she's saying, if there's another terrorist attack, Britons should, quote, run away as far as possible. People should flee rather than ducking down where they are. And then hide once they cannot flee further from the attack. So a, a PR effort from the police department in the case of a terrorist attack, run, hide, tell. That's what they're saying. Run, hide, tell. He said, she said, it may seem blindingly obvious, but some people don't run. They'll duck down where they are. And do all sorts of different things in a panic. So let's be really clear. Run as far away as possible. And when you can't run any further, hide. And then call the police because we've got the people, the resources, and the firearms to deal with it. We're not going to get into a Second Amendment conversation. Too obvious. I know what you just thought right there. But here's some British values. Well, we're, we're told that we're going to reinforce British values. Okay, what British values? Running. Running away, running away as far as possible from a threat and then hiding and then calling the police because they're the only ones who can do anything. I can't do anything. Run, hide, tell. Now, I don't think those are actually British values. That's my point. Those are not British values. There's reports of of people fighting back. I'm sure you've read some of them. Bouncers throwing chairs and glasses at the terrorists. to keep them from coming into their bars. There's a story of a cab driver. who used his cab to run over one of the terrorists who was stabbing someone. Now a sane culture would encourage people to become qualified and defend themselves in case of an attack like this, to learn to do what it takes to learn to fight back, not to run and hide and submit. Imagine a world where instead of run, hide and submit, right? Really it's run, cower and submit. It's a world where police hold Krav Maga classes for anyone who wants to take a free Krav Maga where police teach people where what it takes to fight back both physically and emotionally people could be prepared, right? This is the mindset that we as a country need to have. What if we had a country instead where officials said, listen, if you die attempting to stop terrorists, we're going to take care of your families. Don't you worry about that. You're going to get a special funeral. You're going to be held up in our society, and your family's going to be taken care of if you step up and kill terrorists in the middle of an attack. Wow. If we did that, then the message instead of uh, attack us and we'll run away real fast and hide real good, the message would be attack us if you dare. These are two totally different planets. Which world do you want to live in? Which society do you want to live in? The world of Todd Beamer? Todd Beamer on United 93. Let's roll. The world of Alex Scarletos and Spencer Stone. These are the Americans who, what, maybe a year or so ago, a terrorist walks on a Paris train with an AK-47, and these two Americans run on him and jump on him. Unbelievable. That guy was going to kill every single person on the train. Thank the Lord that they didn't run, hide, and tell. They beat him up. Which world do you want to live in? That world, or the world where the British values are run, hide and tell? I don't think so. Unfortunately, that's who we're told we have to be. I'll end here. Battle of Thermopylae, 480 BC. You got the Spartans versus the Persians, right? You've seen the movie. You got the few Spartans defeat the many Persians, and after the battle, Xerxes, king, asked a Greek person if everyone from Sparta is like this or if everyone from everyone in Greece is like this and the Greek guy says, there's a town called Sparta, which contains within it about 8,000 full grown men. They are one and all equal to those who have fought here. That is not the message. which terrified Xerxes, obviously that is not the message that the leaders of England are sending to the terrorists not with run hide and tell Slater radio on Twitter Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word
0: Mike Slater on the blaze radio network Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. Yes.
2: Yeah, so here's a 33 year old doorman at a bar. His name's Ozzy. So he started to run away with everyone else, but he turned back. He said, I realized I had to do something. If I hadn't turned back, there would be so many people caught up in the panic. There would have been more people hurt. So me and another guy started launching bar stools, bottles and glasses at them, the terrorists, to try and disrupt them. It was completely chaotic, like a war zone. So the terrorists are trying to go into this bar, but because these guys were chucking stuff at him and they don't want to fight, they turned and ran in a different direction, right into police who shot and killed him. So this guy, because he did not run and hide saved lives. So what the heck is wrong with authorities when they say, Oh, run, run as far as you can. And when you can't stop, just keep running, just keep running even more. And when you can't run any, just never stop running and then hide and call us. Well, like, I don't get that when we have so many examples here of the people who save lives by doing the, the opposite and everyone knows it's the right thing to do. Everyone knows it is. I'll wrap up this, uh, this London talk with this and then I want to get to some D-Day stories as Wednesday was the 73rd anniversary of D-Day. So this is Mark Stein's definition of the post terrorist theater that we've talked about the last, unfortunately a couple of weeks. He says, congratulations It involves the post-terrorist theater it involves congratulations for the speed of the emergency services. The sober anchorman announcing that Theresa May will be chairing a meeting of COBRA. That's the, uh, it's like an emergency meeting as though a bunch of bureaucrats with a butch sounding acronym has any clue about how to stop the corpse count from mounting the cynical strategy of British and American leaders is to get their citizens used to this. They, uh, they want this to be a new normal. This is why Obama, President Obama, said repeatedly, repeatedly he said, that more people in America die from falling in bathtubs than are killed in terrorist attacks. He he says this. He has said this multiple times. That more people die in fall, but from falling in a bathtub than from a terrorist attack, which so far this year isn't even true. I mean, you, you get the point he's trying to make, right? Right. <laughs> that you know this terrorism thing is not that big of a deal, but it's actually not even true. Like more people die from terrorist attacks than there is someone in. Uh, Australia, some some pundit in Australia that said Americans have a a greater chance of being killed by a falling refrigerator than by a terrorist. Same idea. Also not true. The U.S. Product Safety Commission said that toppling electronics and appliances, so this includes TVs, refrigerators, everything, killed 29 people a year and British Islamic terrorists killed 30 people in 12 days. So, where 29 people a year fall die from falling all appliances, I'm assuming mostly TVs, British Islamic terrorists killed 30 people in 12 days. Listen, we're not going to take it any more literally here because that's not their actual point. The bigger point is that they're trying to brush this all off as if it's normal. Just like, you know, listen, people die from falling refrigerators, but it's more, you know, You're still going to have one. You're still going to have a refrigerator. It's worth having a refrigerator because you got to keep your food cold, right? Think of all the benefits that you and your family have from having a refrigerator. Might you die from a falling one? No. Like, almost zero. Same thing they're trying to do with refugees, right? Oh, listen, might you die from from a terrorist? No. I mean, listen... It's, it's not, there's way more benefit we get. That's the, it's way, just like your refrigerator, you get a lot of benefit out of that. You get a lot of benefit out of refugees and immigrants and migrants and Muslims and all that. So it's definitely, yes, yeah, there might be terrorist attack, but you're more likely to fall in a bathtub. That's what they're getting at. They're trying to say that, yeah, this is a risk. That's just part of living in modern culture. And to that I say to heck with their statistics. One of the Australian girls who was killed, there's two Aussies who were killed. We'll just take one of them. 21 years old. 100% of her is dead. And if she was your only child, then terrorists killed 100% of your kids. So I see what you're trying to do with your self-righteous perspective, but it doesn't count when none of it is necessary. None of these deaths are necessary, and it certainly doesn't count when you are emboldening these attacks in the first place. Just don't forget that political correctness kills. It's important to realize that. I know you do. Don't be afraid to say it. Or we can just run, hide, and don't say anything, which I guess is what we're supposed to do now. 1-888-933-93, one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, I want to come back, share a story uh, of D-Day. I want to share a story of, so it was 73 years ago Wednesday. Uh, oh, if you have you ever been in Normandy? You have to put it on your bucket list. Oh, it was one of the greatest things I've ever done. It was, it was great. You have to go. You have to experience it. You have to look at the beaches. Um, You, you have to go to Pointe du Hoc. It's great. I'll talk a little bit about it, but... In particular i want to tell the story of who fdr said won us the war i mean there are a lot of people involved in world war ii and fdr said this guy won us the war who how share his story next one 933 93 mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Mike Slater. So I came across a story I've never heard before. I think it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about it. So so Wednesday was the 73rd anniversary of D-Day, and we think of the men who stormed those beaches. And you've seen, you know, Saving Private Ryan, a couple other movies, and they're in those boats, the landing crafts. And the back hatch opens up, and just instantly, instantly, bullets take down nearly every single person in the boat. Just like, like, everyone's dead. It is impossible that D Day worked. It's impossible. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to talk to a uh, uh, green beret, an army ranger who was one of the men of point to Hawk. So point to Hawk is the high, uh, it's point and then D U H O C point to Hawk. It's one of the, it's the highest point between the beaches and the Nazis fortified the top of that cliff so that they could just lob bombs on any invading army if they decided to come on the coast. So, Obviously, the Americans had to take out this area before they could invade the beaches. If they didn't do that, I mean, they definitely like they just every all the Americans would be dead in two seconds. I mean, they just just keep launching bombs from that cliff, so they had to take it out. So the Army Rangers did it. Everything went wrong. Every single thing went wrong. So the cliff's a hundred feet tall. Think about that. That's a ten-story building. Ten stories. Think. So your your house is probably two stories, right? So that's twenty feet. This a hundred feet tall. They planned to arrive at night so that they had the element of surprise, but they were blown off course. So by the time they got there, the sun was up. So there was no more surprise. Also it rained. So they had these grappling hooks that they were planning on shooting up to the top of the cliff and then climbing up the rope. Well, the ropes got wet. So they were heavy and most of them didn't make it to the top of the cliff. So not only is it daytime, but they're climbing fewer ropes and the Nazis are just on top of the cliff, just mowing them down with machine guns. Somehow, they're 225 Americans. Somehow they got up there. But when they got up there, everything was gone. Now this is what's crazy. The mission wasn't to secure the cliff. The mission was to destroy the guns destroy the artillery. And I remember I was talking to this guy and I said, well, you got up there and and the Germans were gone. That's great. You win. And he said, no, the goal was to destroy the artillery. and There was no artillery. So we had to go find it. So what are you talking about? So they had to go into this thick brush. I'm telling you, the grass is over your head. They had to go into this thick brush where the Germans were hiding with all their artillery. And just, I mean, it's like, think of like a cornfield, but it's even, it's even thicker than a cornfield, right? Insane, absolutely insane. I bring this up because I, when I talked to this guy a couple years back, I asked him if he's ever been back to Point du Hoc. And he said he went back one time. He was with his wife. And he walked to the edge of the cliff. The very cliff that he and 225 Army Rangers climbed. And he walked right right to the edge. He put his toes over the edge of the cliff. Which is telling in and of itself because no one would walk that edge that close to the cliff. It's unprotected. No one would walk to the edge of it. But he knew he would be protected again, right? He he wasn't scared to walk right up to the edge of it. And he looked down over the edge of this 100-foot tall cliff. And he said, there's no way we did that. I'll never forget that. He said, there's no way we did that. That's how impossible it was. He did it. Like he literally did it. It'd be one thing if I went there and and said, oh, there's no way someone could do that. He did it. And he concluded there's no way we did that. That's true for that story. And it's true for D-Day in general. There's no way it worked, but it did. Now to my main story here, I've been thinking a lot recently about not just the men on the front lines and not to take anything away from them, obviously, but the people behind the scenes in war and the unsuspecting people that you, uh, really would never hear about. And it could be like code crackers, for example, right? The people who crack these, the the enemy codes, stuff like that. Um, Andrew, and also scientists, right? Andrew Higgins is one of these men. Higgins growing up, uh, not a good student, a uh, tough, no-nonsense guy. But the only place he found peace was around boats. He loved fixing boats. Started doing it when he was 12. Lived in Nebraska. He moved to the South in his early 20s. Uh, but he he didn't work on boats when he moved to the south. He was in the the timber industry. Now he's working for this company, and the company had trouble moving timber in shallow water, and they couldn't figure out how to do it. And he wasn't doing anything with boats at the time, but he said, "Oh, I, I know about boats," and he decided to build a vessel that could move the wood down down a shallow water down shallow river, right? not even a decade later, he owned a small shipyard in new Orleans and he was building these boats, these super shallow boats that were really popular with loggers and oil triggers. And they were designed so that the propeller doesn't hit the ground. Right. He called it the Eureka boat. And it wasn't until a couple of years later when the Marines came calling, they needed some boat that could be used to, a, to land on beaches. Why? Because the beaches weren't as guarded as heavily as the ports. So the deep water ports, the Nazis were all about them, right? Because that's, that's the place where invasions take place because there's deep water and they weren't really too worried about the beaches. Obviously they were protected. They just told about Point Du Hoc, but they weren't as protected as the deep water ports. So the Americans said, all right, we're going to, if we're going to invade, we have to do it in the beaches, but they didn't have any boats that could do it. So they went to Higgins. One day Higgins had 50 employees. Just a couple weeks later, he was one of the world's largest boat manufacturers. Little perspective here. September 1943, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, 92% of the boats in the Navy were made by Higgins. <laughs> now, obviously, you know, you have an aircraft carrier versus these one of these boats, which are really small. But each boat's a boat. 92% of them were made by Higgins. I'm sorry, maybe I wasn't, I should have mentioned this earlier. These are the boats that you see on Saving Private Ryan, right? The boats where they go up on the beach or as close to the beach as they can. And then the back opens up and they run out onto the beach. One of FDR's advisors, it's called the Higgins boat now. One of the FDR advisors in Newsweek article 1942, he said, it is Higgins himself who takes your breath away. Higgins is an authentic master builder. With the kind of willpower, brains, drive, and daring that characterize the American empire builders of an earlier generation. It is pretty easy to see, and this can be said about a lot of people and a lot of things, but it's easy to see that we would not have won the war without the Higgins boat. And that's not just me saying it. I mean, FDR said Higgins is the man who won us the war. I don't think we could have won the war because there's no way we would have gotten so close to the beaches. I mean, we couldn't even get on the beach as it was, right? And you've seen St. Prev. Ryan, when you jump in the water, you still got to get through the water to the beach, right? But imagine if we got a mile off the beach. What are you going to do? There would have been even more casualties. So there's a ton of lessons here, obviously, but the lesson that I get from the story of Higgins is that when you're going through life, no matter where you are or what you're doing, you never know what it's training and preparing you for. Higgins, yeah, when he was young, he was you know liked to work on boats. But when he was an adult, he was in the logging industry. That's very different from building boats for the military. But it was the lessons he learned in the logging industry that led him to be able to build boats that the military needed at that time. Does that make sense? If he just stayed in the boat building industry... Then he would have built boats that wouldn't have been helpful to the military. But because he spent time in the logging industry, he was able to learn different skill sets that helped him when the time was right during World War II. Amazing. So no matter where you are, you can learn from it and it will prepare you for something else. Who knows what else, though? That's the fun part. 188-933-93. The Higgins Boat. Mike Slater show, The Blaze, Radio Network, spread the word.
0: This is. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. 888-900-3393. 888 Mike Slater is on.
2: One last D-Day thing. Slater, Chris, I appreciate you being here today. We'll uh, wrap up here with the last D-Day story. Um, the Just, just on the, the theme of how impossible D-Day was, and even the guys who were there looking back on it, being like, oh, those, that's impossible. What? And we were just talking again just to bring the point home. If Higgins never worked in the logging industry, then he wouldn't have designed that boat and D Day couldn't have taken place. But even all that together, there had to be a million other things that came together. And one of them was the massive deception campaign that took place to make D Day possible that I never only learned about recently. There's a couple different names for it because there's a couple different aspects of it, but one of them is called um, Operation uh, Overlord. So they, the the Americans, the allies had to put on this huge fake deception campaign in order to think in order to make Hitler think that we were invading somewhere else. So they had about a dozen German spies who they flipped and turned into British double agents and they would feed fake intelligence to the Germans. So a pair of these double agents told the Germans that the British fourth army was teaming up with the Soviets to invade Norway so the so the Germans are like, okay, all right, we'll keep an eye up on Norway. So then the allies st- kicked up all this uh, this fake radio chatter about you know, how tanks the tanks aren't working in the sub-zero temperature and stuff like that, right? So the Germans are hearing this and like, okay, maybe they are doing this. So Hitler, just a couple weeks before D-Day, sent some divisions up to Norway. This is my favorite though. We built inflatable tanks. There's pictures, if you look this up, there's pictures of guys holding up a tank with one hand because it's just a balloon. And from the sky, they looked real. So we had this army of just all these, this huge army of fake balloon tanks. And we even used these rollers to simulate the tracks behind the, the tanks to make the planes think that they were real. Unbelievable. We had an actor. He was an Australian actor who looked like the general, Bernard Montgomery. So he would go scout out certain areas in the north and the German spies would see him. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, why else would he be here if, we were, if they weren't going to invade Norway? Amazing. Then on D-Day, we had planes drop these um, thin uh, strips of aluminum out of the back of their plane so that it showed up on the German radars as if there was a giant fleet approaching. Right? It was just one plane with a bunch of uh, aluminum. We even dropped fake paratroopers in Norway and we had them wired so that they simulated rifle fire and grenades. When they hit the ground, had like fireworks on them. (laughs) Amazing. The deception. Now, even as D-Day was going on, there was a Spanish businessman who was a spy for the Germans, but he was really, again, a double agent for the British. He fed fake Intel to the British as D-Day was taking place, that the invasion of Normandy was just a red herring. And that, 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 so he, this guy fed the Germans that D-Day was the deception and the real attack was still coming up North. Right? So he totally flipped it on him and he was so trusted by Hitler that Hitler delayed sending reinforcements to France, to Normandy for weeks while the Allies got their foothold in Europe that they needed. It was just the delay that they needed in order to not just get on the land, but to get situated. Isn't that deception unbelievable, all the things that had to come together? Again, impossible. Absolutely impossible. Like If someone wrote it, there's no way it could happen. i got about a minute here i'll share one quick story frank Soboleski, one of the band of brothers uh he was one of the men who liberated a, a concentration camps as they made their way through germany and he says i witnessed it with my own eyes rows and rows of buildings, stacks of bodies low moaning and crying sobbing that made you want to plug your ears our officers rushed us out of there as soon as they could they didn't want anyone giving the prisoners any of their rations because it might make them very sick to start eating our food uncontrolled. The graves registration and the medics were rushed in as we, the soldiers, were let out. Wow. That wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have been liberated if it weren't for D-Day. Make sure your kids know about it. They're not learning about it in history class. The only thing they learn about World War II history is the atomic bomb and Japanese internment. Let them know the full story, the full truth, The heroism, the miracle of D-Day. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. We'll see you next Saturday, Slater Crusaders. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Mike Slater.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.